The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we continue to look at the various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will examine them against the, what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand His revelation of Himself and His relationship to man. As a prelude to answering, any apparent Bible contradictions. If you, as a listener, have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions, 
will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. In the previous episode series, we examined and answered 29 questions regarding the Bible contradictions from our old friend, Mr. Ash, the atheist, skeptic, and humanist. It is perhaps timely to remind everyone that at the outset, Mr. Ash likes to repeat certain allegations and assertions against God, the Bible, and Christianity, and then ignore and or pretend that their claims are fact and that there are no challenges, rebuttal, or counter-arguments which refute those claims. In many, if not most cases, Mr. Ash's claims rise to the level of disingenuous and seemingly purposeful self-enforced ignorance regarding the issues. Take, for example, one blanket statement from Mr. Ash regarding the topic of alleged Bible contradictions. Mr. Ash sets the table with a quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, which says that, quote, God is not the author of confusion, unquote. Mr. Ash then proceeds to argue that because there is so much supposed confusion regarding God's word, that the confusion is God's fault, or the Bible's fault, which demonstrates in the end that there is no God, according to Mr. Ash. If there was a God who was enforcing absolute order, then Mr. Ash's logic would dictate that there would be absolute harmony everywhere. Predictably, Mr. Ash here purposely ignores the central thesis of the Bible from Genesis 3 onward, that man, not God, brought sin and rebellion into the world. As a result of man's sinful nature from the fall, man is fraught with confusion. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 is correct. God is not the author, i.e. the one who created or perpetuates supposed confusion. Man is responsible for this by virtue of his stubborn rebellious nature. Mr. Ash is also being hypocritical because while he would like to pretend that he is free from the stain of confusion, having been enlightened by whatever means, the fact is that Mr. Ash suffers from the same effects of confusion as everyone else. Take for one example typical scientific questions such as, how big is the universe? 
or how old is the earth, etc. Now, does every single scientist throughout history on the planet agree in every single respect as to the specific details and answers to just these two questions? Well, if they don't absolutely agree, then are we to conclude that science is the author of confusion? Well, obviously not. The issue is not the reality of what is. The issue of confusion is a result of the scientists, i.e. their biases, their opinions, their experiences, or their lack thereof. But Mr. Ash would never say that science doesn't exist. Instead, Mr. Ash would say that the truth of reality is there. It is simply an issue of time, more research, further evidence, or one or more of the scientists who must humble themselves and reevaluate the evidence to discover where their error is. Well, so it is with God's Word. The issue is not with God's Word. The issue is with man. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected question, Mr. Ash asks, Is it unlawful to kill or not. In order to arrive at this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash cites the following. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13, quote, Thou shalt not kill, unquote. Also, Leviticus 24 17, which says, quote, And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death, unquote. For the supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash cites the following, Exodus chapter 32, verse 27, quote, And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor, unquote. Also, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, quote, And he smote the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people fifty thousand and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented, because the Lord had smitten many of the men with a great slaughter, unquote. Also, 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verses 2 through 8, quote, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid in wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together, 
and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid in wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword." Unquote. Next, Numbers chapter 15, verse 36, quote, And all the congregation brought him without the camp, and stoned him with stones, and he died, as the Lord commanded Moses, unquote. And finally, Hosea chapter 13, verse 16, quote, Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up." Unquote. So here, in essence, in Mr. Ash's eagerness to find instances of supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash ignores the elephant in the room and commits a logical fallacy of the general rule among other errors. In essence, the answer is so blatantly obvious that Mr. Ash misses the forest for the trees. First of all, we need to look at the original language in the passage. Clearly, the main issue is the word translated quote-unquote kill. The Hebrew word here is ratshak. In every case, Wherever you look, almost every commentator and the language dictionary translates ratsack as, quote, to kill, to put to death, murder, or slay, unquote. In order to more clearly understand which English word and its definition is meant, one would have to look at the immediate sentence the paragraph, the chapter, the book, and ultimately compare what is in view according to the entire Word of God in its correct context. If we simply arbitrarily choose the English word kill and assume that God has or never will provide any legal or moral exceptions, then it will not take any time to find both man and God in violation of the supposed assumption. However, if we proceed under the understanding that Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 is ultimately referring to the legal and moral distinction of murder, then we have an entirely different outcome. So, which is it? Well, even if we go to an open secular source such as Wikipedia, 
and look up, quote, thou shalt not kill, unquote, we find the following, quote, the Hebrew verb ratzak is the word in the original text that is translated as murder, but it has a wider range of meanings generally describing destructive activity, including meanings, quote, to break, to dash to pieces, unquote, as well as to, quote, slay, kill, murder, unquote. Further, the Torah and the Hebrew Bible make clear distinctions between the shedding of innocent blood versus killing as the due consequence of a crime, unquote. As we look at Exodus, Leviticus, as well as Jewish rabbinic sources which discuss the issue of killing, we see that God provides further context which makes it clear that God distinguishes between murder or what we might today refer to as premeditated or negligent homicide, i.e. killing, and the issues of killing in what we would refer today as justified, accidental, or unintentional homicide. The New Testament sees Jesus ratifying the concept of this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Quote, Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Unquote. In this passage, Jesus reveals the spirit of the law, referring to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, Thou shalt not kill. What's the determining factor according to Jesus? It's the heart, the intent of each man. Well, how so? Because, according to Jesus, anger and arguably other sinful emotions of the heart are where the intent to kill are formed and then acted upon to violate the meaning of Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Moving forward... The spirit of the law, as begun with God's word, continues today and finds these same basic concepts codified in our current criminal law. For example, current law states that, in general, homicide, i.e., the killing of another human being, is a felony. However, the law makes certain legal exceptions. So, if, for example, another human being picks up a sharp knife and runs toward me screaming, quote, I'm going to kill you, unquote, 
and I perceive an immediate, viable, lethal threat, I am legally entitled to use deadly force to stop that threat and to save my own life. My intent is to stop the threat and to spare my life. If, regrettably, in the process, the assailant's actions result in their own death, then I have acted in self-defense, resulting in justifiable homicide. There is no intent, malice, or even anger on my part. It is simply self-defense resulting in death. Now, a second, perhaps even more important reality which Mr. Ash ignores is that of God's sovereignty. To put it simply, God is the boss. God is the one who holds ultimate authority for all things, life, death, eternity, and everything in between is under the ultimate, sovereign, unilateral, absolute, immutable will and control of God. God creates, sustains, and controls all life. Notice in Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 it says, Thou shalt not kill. The thou in this case is referring to man forming the intent or deciding to kill or murder unilaterally, outside, or apart from the authority of God to do so. Simply put, since every life belongs to God, only God can decide in His perfect wisdom when and under what circumstance a human life is forfeit. Mr. Ash may not like it, but God can and does have the ultimate wisdom and sovereignty to give life and to kill. If and when he chooses to do so, it is always according to his perfect wisdom, mercy, righteousness, holiness, love, and will. Whatever God does serves his perfect purpose to bring all things together for his plan of redemption and restoration for those whom he loves. In proper perspective, God clearly proclaimed in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 that in the day that Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that man would surely die. Man did rebel, sinned, and ate of the tree which caused separation between man and God. From Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 forward and beyond, Romans chapter 6 verse 23 gives the progressive revelation and reality that the wages, i.e. the consequences of sin, is death. So, 
if God were to exclusively exercise his attributes of justice, holiness, and righteousness, God would be just at the point Adam and Eve sinned to take the life of Adam and Eve as forfeit as a direct result. By extension, Romans chapter 3 makes it clear that all have sinned. There is none that is good. Accordingly, God would be just to send all mankind to hell as our just reward. The correct perspective is that God demonstrates his attributes of mercy, love, and forgiveness to any. Think of it as every person having fully deserved being on death row awaiting eventual execution. In this situation, although we fully and completely merit death, God exercises his sovereign will to choose to pardon and give life to those whom he wills. Now, an underlying hidden assumption by Mr. Ash is that Mr. Ash believes himself to have a greater morality than God, his word, or God's people. Mr. Ash reasons that he knows that it is wrong and immoral to kill for any reason, period. In order for God to be God in Mr. Ash's estimation, God should never kill or allow anyone to be killed for any reason, period. Further, by extension, those who call themselves God's people can never kill anyone for any reason if they are truly God's people. Because God and his people dare to say that God is sovereign and has authority over life and death and consequences, God chooses or allows whom he wills to be killed God is immoral, and thus God is not God, because if he was, he would be consulting with Mr. Ash and doing Mr. Ash's will. The only problem for Mr. Ash is his hypocrisy in this area as well. Why? Because when Mr. Ash finds it convenient, he too kills. For example, is Mr. Ash going to stand on principle and simply stand by idly and refrain from killing if someone breaks into his home and attempts to stab his pregnant wife and the only way to prevent such is to kill? Or does Mr. Ash even blush? when every day we say that it is okay to kill hundreds of innocent human beings simply by redefining terms and calling that human a quote-unquote choice or a quote-unquote tissue mass? No. 
Mr. Ash is often proud of such things as a necessary right or even a shining example of freedom in society. Mr. Ash believes he is the ultimate authority with a unilateral moral high ground to do what only he knows with utter certitude is right in his own eyes. But if there is a God, which Mr. Ash ultimately denies, then God has no authority which he can unilaterally exercise. Mr. Ash expects that if there is a God, in order for God to please Mr. Ash, God must read the Bible which Mr. Ash has written and follow Mr. Ash's Ten Commandments so that Mr. Ash can approve of God and then like him but not worship him since Mr. Ash can only worship himself and his own supposed wisdom. So let's look at these verses. And as we look at the examples provided by Mr. Ash, what do we see? In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17, quote, And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death, unquote. Here, Mr. Ash's example, which is labeled as an example, where supposedly nobody is ever allowed to kill, we see, in fact, God is saying, as previously stated, that when humans kill other humans outside the authority given by God under his rules and exemptions, that those who do so shall be put to death, i.e. killed, under the due process of law and authority delegated by God. So, by Mr. Ash listing this as a proof passage of absolutely no killing, Mr. Ash has defeated his own argument and, in fact, given proof of our counter-argument above. Next, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 27, we learn in context that having been in bondage for 400 years and having been delivered by God by ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, that despite all these miracles, 3,000 Israelites choose to reject God and rebelliously commit idolatry and lewd behavior while awaiting God's Ten Commandments. When Moses returns, despite having seen the consequences of the Egyptians who died when they rejected God, 3,000 Israelites choose to reject, rebel against, and deny God when Moses asks, quote, Who is on the Lord's side? Unquote. So here, in addition to all of the arguments which have been made already regarding God's sovereignty, let's remember that these 3,000 made the obviously foolish and fatal decision to remove themselves from God, who is the only true source of life and protection, and chose their own fate. 
in the larger scheme, this event and story is there as a type, an example of what is the ultimate fate of all man as God himself gives every man opportunity to answer the question, quote, who is on the Lord's side, unquote. Or, as Jesus asks in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, quote, whom do you say that I am, unquote. As in the case of Exodus chapter 32, verse 27, the answer to these questions will determine the eternal fate of every person. In any case, Exodus chapter 32, verse 27 is an example of justified homicide upon the judicial process and review by God according to his sovereign authority who then delegates Moses to carry out his just sentence. Next, we have 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, where once again we see God's sovereign authority exercised to take life which belongs to him. The action is not arbitrary. The action is based upon the willful disobedience of the men of Beth Shemesh who looked into the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the interior of the Ark of the Covenant was the earthly visible representation of God's holiness, righteousness, and perfection. Consequently, no fallen man can look upon the totality of God's perfection without falling dead, because doing so is the realization that apart from God's covering grace, which is typified by the mercy seat, the covering of the ark which they removed, we are each dead in our sins and trespasses. Once again, this incident is another type and example demonstrating that it is not possible to have fellowship or to enter into God's holy presence without a mediator, without the shedding of blood. To do so is death because we each have sin. The penalty for sin is death. Thus, we must have a faith relationship with Jesus, who is our mediator, who shed his blood on our behalf, so that by his covering atonement, we may enter into God's presence by his finished work. So, from a typological standpoint, without the results we see in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, we would have a theological and typological contradiction. Additionally, Regarding Mr. Ash's examples, citing 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 through 8, all are examples where we must note the following in answer to Mr. Ash's question. Number one, in each case, if, in fact, God is the one commanding the killing of the respective people in question, then God is granting his authority 
to carry out his just sovereign will. Since God is in authority and is commanding the killing, the killing is justified in the same way as when a duly authorized judge and or jury pronounces the death penalty on a person or persons. In this analogy, God is the ultimate and final supreme court of the universe and has justly weighed all things. If God has pronounced death, then that death is both lawful and moral, and there is no violation of Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Number two, in each case, we are many times talking about the policy of wartime ethics. In wartime ethics, it is understood that there is an enemy who presents an existential threat in one or more ways to the peace, safety, and or security of a community's physical, mental, and spiritual welfare. Here, God is the commander-in-chief who has the ultimate authority to rightly and justly defend his people by whatever means, including death, and he is just. Next, we have Numbers chapter 23, verse 16. In this case, prior to the incident, God has already commanded in Exodus chapter 31, verse 14 and 15, that anyone who violated his commandment to honor the Sabbath and rest on that day would be put to death. As we come to Numbers chapter 23, verse 16, we find an unnamed man who violated the Sabbath by working and gathering wood, was caught and was arrested. After due process, deliberation, and sentencing, God instructed that Moses and the Israelites put the man to death according to God's law. This again is no different than the judicial process which takes place every day in any secular superior court. For all the same reasons previously mentioned, the outcome of death is justified and there is no contradiction. Finally, we have Hosea chapter 13 verse 16. In this case, we have a prophecy from God to his people. The prophecy is simply an axiomatic reality which is illustrative of the overall dichotomous decision set before all mankind on earth. Namely, when man humbles himself honors, submits, obeys, and follows God and his word by faith, then man has the blessing of God's protection, favor, love, joy, fellowship, and eventual eternal life. However, when man rebels, disrespects, disobeys, dishonors, and abandons God, then man removes himself from God and his protection, favor, love, joy, etc. to the same degree. 
Apart from God, man faces Satan, the world, and the flesh, all of which are under the curse, and the inevitable, unavoidable consequence is hardship, sorrow, sickness, bondage, physical death, and eventual eternal damnation. So, Hosea chapter 13, verse 16 is a warning from God to his people, reminding them of what will happen if they do not repent and return to him. Had they not been sinning against God, the warning would not be necessary. If they repented, then the result of death would not be a reality. In the end, if Mr. Ash is upset at the prospect of death in Hosea chapter 13 verse 16, then Mr. Ash needs to get in a time machine and go back and inform Samaria, who is the one facing death, to simply repent and all will be well. However, since Mr. Ash is in the same boat of disbelief, dishonor, and rebellion, it is likely that this is why Mr. Ash sees this and any other contradictions to begin with. The real question is whether Mr. Ash can or will, like Samaria, learn from this or any other warning from God. In conclusion, there is no contradiction in any of the examples presented by Mr. Ash. God holds the keys to ultimate authority to life and death. He is sovereignly in control of the affairs of all mankind, including Mr. Ash. As in so many other cases, Mr. Ash is simply randomly grabbing at straws and taking issue with words, phrases, and statements in the Bible which he believes are in conflict with his own predefined terms and definitions, which Mr. Ash has already decided in his own priori bias, world and life view assumption. But God and his word are the ultimate source of authority for meaning, morals, truth, reality, beauty, and significance and not Mr. Ash or the world. In all, to date, in this series, what we have in each case are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like, who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these 30 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, 
due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.